1: This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we pray now that you would be with us as we give our attention to your word. Oh God, would you pay attention to us? We uh, need not the wisdom of a human being, but... Uh, Your very wisdom that you promise to give to anybody who asks for it. And so we ask that you would uh, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week I was um, remembering uh, something that happened in our family. It's been a couple of years now. um, Sunday mornings at our house, as you... um, probably haven't thought about, but when I say it, you might expect Sunday mornings are a little rushed sometimes at the pastor's house, and um, a couple years ago, it was Sunday morning, and I was running late, and uh, needed to get out the door to get to church, and as I had uh, kind of showered and uh, gotten ready and was leaving the house, one of my uh, sons came and said, hey, Dad... Um, uh, he wanted to wear a tie to church. And he said, hey dad, could you help me with my tie? And it's kind of one of those moments where I'm like, ah, I don't, I, okay, sure. <laughs> I don't really have time, but yeah, let's do this. And so I, I kind of kneel down and I, I'm helping him at, with his tie and um, as I'm looking at my son, I just feel like something's not right here. But uh, you know, I'm getting the tie under his collar and I'm tying his tie and I kind of cinch it up, give it that last look, and I look at him, and he looks so cute, right? Everything, and then, and and at that moment, he grabs at his mouth, and I dove out of the way as he just sprayed vomit all over me and himself and uh, everything, and I thought, you know, I knew something didn't look right here. Something was not right with this situation, and I knew it, but sadly, knowing that that something is not right didn't actually fix the problem. Uh, Something is not right about the world that we live in, and we all know it, and we all have this sense in in various ways that uh, kind of pricks us in small ways and uh, and often in in not-so-small ways that something's not right. But just knowing that something is not right doesn't actually solve the problem. We're in this series in the beginning looking at the early chapters of the book of Genesis and um, seeking to understand how the early chapters of Genesis shape us and form us for life in this world. And over the past couple of months we've explored Genesis 1 and 2 which we've said is the first act of the drama of Scripture. Uh, The first act where God tells us about the original goodness of the world that he created. And we see over and over again that God says, it is good, it is good, it is good, God is good, and the world is good. And he creates human beings to... Uh, Bear and reflect his image and represent him in the world and human beings are good and he gives us relationships and they are good and he gives us work to do and it is good and everything is very good. But that's not the world that we now live in and something has gone wrong and uh, something is deeply wrong with the world that we live in and uh, we know that something is not right but what exactly has gone wrong and, and what can be done about it is a question that the human race has proposed answers to really throughout human history. Uh, About 100 years ago, Beatrice Webb uh, was alive. She was a English social reformer and um, she's considered, Beatrice Webb is considered to be one of the architects of the British welfare system. Uh, She was one of the founders of the London School of Economics. She was a social reformer, uh, a very smart woman. And when she was almost 70, she wrote about looking back in her diary at something she had written to herself in her diary when she was a much younger woman. And she said this. She said, in my diary, 1890, I wrote, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts of humanity. How little you can count on changing some of these, for instance, the appeal of wealth and power and greed, by any change in the social machinery. We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get any response? No amount of knowledge or science has been of any avail unless we can curb the bad impulses. That's a remarkable statement, especially if you think about The person who said it. A very smart, very gifted uh, woman who believed and spent most of her life working out her belief that the right social policies, the right uh, social programs could fix or could drastically improve the conditions of the human race. And then she nears the end of her life and she basically looks back and says, I have... Everything I've done has been predicated on a belief in the innocence of human nature. And having spent my whole life working those implications out, I'm now forced to reconsider my original assumption. Historically, I think there are basically three ways that humans respond to the the awareness that all is not right in our world. How do we do something about it? We have basically three strategies. Guilt uh, effort and education, and um, I'd say at least two of those are, are really good things, but they're they're insufficient, right? Guilt says um, something like, "You shouldn't be greedy because either God will get you, or." Um, Uh, don't be greedy because that's what those terrible people are like, right? So guilt is this motivator for improving our behavior. Or effort, if we just try a little harder, it hasn't worked the last thousand times, but the one thousand and first time is surely going to be the the effort if you just put a little bit more muscle into it. Or education, if only people knew a little bit more, if if we had a little bit more information. um, You know, if only the nutrition label on that bag of chips was just a little bit bigger then I wouldn't gorge myself on them. Hasn't worked yet. (laughs) Uh, Not all bad things, right? But they haven't curbed our worst impulses. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the Bible's explanation for and response to the reality that our world is not the way it ought to be. We're moving into the second act of the drama of Scripture, Uh, We've looked at creation, as I've said. Now we're moving into the second act, the fall. The fall of the human race. The fall of creation. And um, this is where we see how brokenness and tragedy enters into the story. And the word that the Bible uses to describe all of this is the word sin. And I feel like as soon as we say the word sin, we have to just acknowledge the reality that um, we probably have very different Responses to that word. For for some of us, we've maybe if you've grown up or been around a, a church environment for a long time, you're used to hearing the word sin, and you um, or maybe you're very comfortable talking about the concept of sin. Um, it, it it might for others of us invoke something like uh, laughter. Um, or, or cynicism or fear or, um, or, or, or something you know, very negative like that. Others of us just want to run from it or maybe just ignore it. I had a, a neighbor say to me once um, you know, when you move into a new neighborhood and your neighbors are like, So what brought you here? I'm like, Well, my job. I'm like, Well, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. And then they say whatever comes to mind. And um, I had a neighbor once tell me, um, he, he said to me when he heard I was a pastor, Oh, your problem is that you believe in such a thing called sin. And if you just get rid of that category, all of the problems just evaporate. The problem with the world in, in, in this view was the idea that there is such a thing uh, as sin. Um, but the reality is we can ignore sin, but it doesn't, it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away if we simply ignore it. <clears throat> um, what I want you to see this morning is that our lives make sense when we understand our lives as part of the drama of redemption. That we live in a world that was created good and yet has fallen into sin. And eventually we're gonna to get to the third act that God is at work to redeem. Um, everything is not awful, everything is not wonderful. It's both and, and this story, the story of scripture explains our world more, than, uh, more accurately than any other story. Uh, why do we have to talk about sin? When we talk about the reality of sin, it highlights for us the goodness of what God has done for us. Rachel Hollander wrote, if we pretend that the darkness isn't dark, it dampens the beauty of the light when we acknowledge the reality that our world is not the way that it should be, it highlights for us the majesty of what God has done for us in Christ. So what has happened? What has gone wrong? And what, if anything, is God doing about it? First thing that I want you to see here is what sin is. This morning we're going to take a a broad overview of, of kind of the problem of sin, and then in the coming weeks we'll look at some of the details of the effects of sin. So what, what sin is, if we have any conception of sin, uh, it tends to be, I think, um, a fairly flimsy aware, uh, picture of sin. We think of sin as God giving us a set of rules, some of which feel somewhat arbitrary, and saying, don't break these rules. But the picture that the Bible lays out for us is that um, sin is actually, well, I suppose the other thing, that we either think of sin as breaking the rules, or we think of sin as like the really, really bad things. Like murder is, is a sin, but I haven't killed anybody lately, so, um, but, but the Bible actually has a far more nuanced approach to sin. When we look at the story of Adam and Eve and the rebellion against God and sin entering into the world, We get a, I would say, a more robust picture of what sin is because what we see here is that sin really begins not with the behavior so much as with the attitude. Sin begins um, with a question. Sin begins by sneering at the goodness of God. Uh, There's so many questions this passage raises for us that it doesn't answer, like talking snakes. Where does that come from? We don't know. But we can just safely say, all snakes are, are bad, I think. I think that's a justified uh, response. <laughs> but the snake, the serpent comes, Satan, in the form of the, of the serpent, comes to Eve. And he asks this question: Did God really say, Did God really say, "You shall not eat of any tree in the garden?" Now we know that that's not what God said. God said, You may eat of any tree, but there's one tree that you may not eat of. But it begins with Satan sneering at God, calling into question his, his goodness. What is God doing? You know, why would God forbid something so obviously good from us? Why is he taking something? away from us. The the, the question really that Satan is posing is, who does God think he is and what kind of a God would forbid his people from eating something that is so obviously going to make them happy? There's an undermining of God's authority and a questioning of his goodness and it creates a situation in which we think that God's commands... Uh, should sort of be submitted to us so that we can evaluate whether they're worth following or not. Before there's an action, there's an attitude of rebellion, there's a a rejection of the authority of God. Now, you might think, well, God didn't really give Adam and Eve a a sufficient explanation. They didn't know that, um, you know, God, God gave them this rule, don't eat the fruit of this one tree, but he didn't tell them why they shouldn't do it. And it's just a tree, and it's just a piece of fruit, So why does it really matter, Um, and if it was so important, why didn't God explain to them why it was so important? You see what the problem with that line of thinking is? The problem with that line of thinking is, if God were to come to Adam and Eve and say, you can eat the fruit of any trees except for the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, here's what's going to happen. Uh, the world would be plunged into infinite suffering and death and corruption and strife in everything you do. Adam and Eve would be like, well, I don't want that, (laughs) right? And so they could therefore obey God because of what they don't want to happen to them instead of because they trust in the goodness of God. If God gives an explanation, then obedience is like a cost-benefit analysis. What's the benefit to obeying God? What's in it for me? When God, our good Father, says, I love you, I've given you everything. I've placed you in paradise, I give you myself. I'm inviting you to trust me. This is really important, I think, because it shows us that sin is not just about breaking rules. And the Bible shows this over and over again, that there, that there is a, a way of rebelling against God that looks like just flaunting God's rules and breaking his standards and, and overtly running away from him. And we can look at that and name that and say, yeah, that, that's, that's not what God calls us to. That's, that's sin. But there's also a, a way that it, we technically obey, at least in some ways, um, God. But it leads to a self righteousness. And it leads to a looking down on others that we don't think measure up. And at root, both of these approaches stem from the same fundamental trust of God. And this is important. Um, Satan, you know, in my almost 20 years as a pastor, I, I have very rarely had somebody come and sit down with me and simply say, Um, I doubt the existence of God, and I want to talk to you about that. Now, every once in a while, but I would say for every, you know, one of those conversations, I have 50 or 100 conversations that begin with some form of, does God really mean what he says here? The questioning of God's authority, and it's interesting to look back and see that that's, that's Satan's technique from the beginning. Satan doesn't go after the existence of God, but he gets us to question the goodness of God. Satan is not saying God doesn't exist. He's saying, if you obey God, you will be unhappy. God is trying to withhold something good from you. Uh, his response in verses four and five uh, he says, Did God really say? Eve responds, but she sort of lies and expands on God's prohibition and then. Satan lies in response, says, you will not surely die, but God knows that when you eat the fruit, then you will be like God. He doesn't question God's existence. He's getting us to question whether obeying God is actually in our best interest. He gets us to believe that if we obey God, that life is gonna be a drag, and the lie that Satan puts in the heart of Adam and Eve is a lie that's in me, and it's in you. And it's the heart attitude that leads us all to sin. Um, You know, it's the attitude that says, I know God calls me to be generous with my time, with my money, just in my posture, my attitude towards other people. But if I give, then there won't be enough left over for me. So rather than obeying God, we take matters into our own hands. Sin begins not with an action, but with an attitude, a questioning of God's goodness. But distrusting God doesn't remain simply an attitude. It it progresses into an action. And so they take the fruit and they eat. And the result is disaster. So the second thing we see in this passage is what sin sin brings. What happens as a result of Adam and Eve's sin? Well, it says this in verse 7 and 8. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They knew that they were naked, and they hid from God. The result of human sin is shame. We live in a world that says there's no such thing as sin or it's not really a big deal and everybody does it and you've got to get rid of this archaic view of sin in order to be truly free. And I guess the, the, the response to that is to sort of say like, how is that going for us? Because we can get rid of the concept of sin but that hasn't gotten rid of guilt or shame. If we look out into the world and we see that the result of sin is there, then we know that sin is real, and ignoring it will do nothing. The result of sin is disastrous. Shame enters into the world as a consequence of sin. Shame, um, one way to think of shame is that shame is a hyper self-awareness. Um, you know, think about it like this. like Adam and Eve were naked before they sinned. They just weren't really concerned about being naked, right? And so now that they've sinned, shame comes and they are hyper aware of their nakedness and vulnerability. Sin brings an awareness that we are naked, that who I am is an embarrassment, that I need to hide from other people, that I need to hide from God, that I need to protect myself. When sin comes, shame comes. And when shame comes, we then try to cover ourselves and our own sense of inadequacy by doing what? By shifting blame. And that's, that's the next thing that happens here. Relational discord enters into human relationships. Adam and Eve hide from God and God comes looking for them. And God says to Adam, Adam, where are you? And he says, I heard that you were, uh, I heard you and I was naked and I was afraid. And and God says, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat the fruit that I commanded you not to eat of? And what does Adam say? It was my wife's fault. (laughs) Passes the buck. You you know, if there's any truth to the, the, the trope sometimes of like the man being the bumbling idiot, it, it kind of is rooted right here in Genesis 3. With Adam saying, I wasn't my responsibility. Um, where was Adam when the, when the serpent was talking to Eve? I mean, he was standing right there next to her, right? And he didn't say anything. And now in his shame, when God comes looking for him, he passes the buck and he throws his wife under the bus. Sin brings shame. Sin brings death. Sin, sin brings the curse. God says to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. We'll talk more about this in a couple weeks. Your, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he will rule over you. The result of sin is that there is conflict and manipulation in our most intimate relationships. God says there will be pain in childbearing. The unique ability of women to bring life into the world will now be a source of pain. The result of sin is shame. Uh, The result of sin is the sense that we are uncomfortable in our own skin and so we bite each other and we hide from God and we try to ignore the problem. But when we try to ignore the problem, the problem doesn't simply go away. Several years ago when we lived in Salt Lake City, uh, we owned this great house and um, there's this part of the... um, the uh, the landscaping that's in between the the public sidewalk and the street. Does that make sense? Like not my front yard, but it's then there's my front yard, there's a sidewalk, and then there's this no man's land in between the sidewalk and the street. And according to the city of Salt Lake, it was my responsibility to maintain that landscaping. And um, I didn't think that was such a great deal. And <laughs> for some reason, and so at one point I had this idea of like, I'm going to get uh, zero scaping. I'm gonna get. T- I got 26 tons of gravel delivered in a um, dump truck, and uh, we dumped 26 tons of gravel on that landscaping area that I didn't want to maintain. And I thought it'd be zero maintenance, and it was for about six weeks. <laughs> and then the weeds start growing up through the gravel, and now it's like impossible to. Get rid of the weeds because of the gravel that I've dumped on top of it. And the point is this. There's no easy way to get rid of a problem but covering it up and thinking that just sheer force of will will hide it, will not make any difference in the long run. Sin is rebellion against God. Thinking that we could be gods ourselves, we rebelled against God and we spit in his face. We find that the result is not the freedom, the good life that the, that, that the serpent promises, but rather shame and death and frustration comes as a result. Now that's the bad news. But there's good news. And the good news is what God does about sin. Um, it, it, you can think about it like this. <laughs> In another world, Genesis three is the last chapter of the Bible. I don't know how you typically respond to things not going well. I've mentioned before I like to build things. I really hate to fix things though. I like to build things but when I make a mistake, often I just wanna like chuck the whole thing and start over again. But thank God that's, that's not what he does. Genesis three is not the last chapter of the Bible. God in his grace pursues fallen women and men, and so he comes to Adam and Eve, and the first words out of his mouth are not words of condemnation, but they are words of hope. Adam and Eve sin, and they are ashamed, and they hide, and in verse 9, God comes to them and says, says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Did you notice, if you were here last week, the Lord God called to them. The covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God initiates. The covenant God seeks out his wayward children. We'll talk more about this next week, but I want you to notice this, this morning this. Before describing the consequences of their sin, God promises to send them a deliverer. God promises immediately. God doesn't go and think about, how am I going to respond to this God immediately promises that one will come to crush the evil serpent and deliver women and men from sin and shame. Having failed to uphold our end of the agreement, the covenant promises of God. When the human race has failed to uphold our end of the gracious covenant, God pursues us in order to uphold our end of the covenant himself. Uh, this is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5 when he's explaining the nature of what has gone wrong in our world and what God is doing to make it right, Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and through death sin, sorry, just as sin came into the world through one man and through, uh, and death through sin, and so death spread to all, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift And the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's saying? Sin enters into our world through one man, Adam. Salvation, grace is offered to us in one man, Jesus. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. Having questioned God, having failed to obey his word and plunging into sin and shame, the human race loses the presence of God and so God in his grace comes to pursue us and he does everything necessary to reconcile us again to himself in Jesus Christ. In Christ, God takes on human flesh so that he might obey God where we had failed. One of the things that happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry it talked about last week, the first thing he does is he goes out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. The very next thing that happens, the Gospel of Matthew says that the Spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the very place where our first parents, Adam and Eve, failed to obey God, Jesus goes there in order to win the victory. There in the wilderness, Satan tempts Jesus to doubt the goodness of God and to use his power for his own benefit. But over and over again, Jesus chooses to trust in God's goodness. It's Fascinating, the third temptation. Satan says to Jesus, if you just bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory. How does Jesus respond to that? I can think of, how I would respond to that if I was Jesus. (laughs) They're already mine. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says instead, um, he responds by quoting the word of God. His response demonstrates his trust in God and his confidence that God will not hold anything good from him and so he responds simply by quoting God's word back to the devil. Whereas Adam and Eve doubted God's goodness in the garden, listening to the voice of Satan, resulting in the human race being driven into the wilderness, Jesus goes into the wilderness where he rejects the voice of Satan, trusting in God in order to open the door for the human race to paradise. At the end of his ministry, as he's about to go to the cross, we find Jesus in a different garden, not the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he suffers And there he goes and he prays to the Father and he prays, Father, if there is any other way to accomplish the plan of redemption, if there is any other way to reconcile sinful human beings to yourself other than the cross, if there's a plan B, would you take this cup from me? But then in the greatest act of trust, he says, yet not your will, but not Yet not my will, but yours be done. When he receives no answer, Jesus trusts the will of God and obeys his voice where we had failed. And so Jesus goes to the cross, and this is the way that Peter describes Jesus' work on the cross in 1 Peter 2. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, and live to righteousness. Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus hangs on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What we have to see is this, the story of Christianity is not a a story of isolated moral fables, which each have a little moral principle that say go and behave in this way. Rather the story of Christianity is one in which God places the human race in paradise and invites us to trust him and when we choose sin instead of God, God comes to us in Christ to obey where we had failed in order to restore us to his presence in paradise. Adam and Eve turned the tree of the knowledge of good and evil into a tree of cursing and as a result, the human race was banished from the tree of life. But on the cross, Jesus climbed the tree of death and took upon himself the curse so that the cross might become for us the tree of life. The essence of sin is us putting ourselves in the place of God, saying we know better than God does about what is good for us, but the essence of salvation is what Jesus does on the cross, putting himself in the place that only we deserve to be. Jesus comes and pays the penalty for our rebellion. He takes your death upon himself, And gives you his life in exchange. So now when God looks upon you, he doesn't see your sin. But he sees the perfect obedience of his son. And he smiles. And he loves you. What does God do about sin? He spares no expense to forgive you and to assure you of that forgiveness. What is God doing about sin? In Christ, he is working to redeem In Christ, he is at work to forgive and to redeem, and he is inviting women and men who have experienced that forgiveness to join him in his work of redemption, carrying the good news of the gospel to our world in both word and deed. Um, One, I think I may have quoted this here before, but one of the most startling examples I have seen in recent years of the power of forgiveness to change someone is um, something Rachel Hollander said a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know if you know who she is. I'm gonna be deliberately vague here um, for the sake of young ears, but um, Rachel Hollander had been in the uh, training program for the U.S., uh, Olympics, the uh, US, U.S. National Gymnastics team, and the team doctor Larry Nasser uh, was convicted of abusing hundreds of little girls and young women. And um, Rachel Denhollander was she, the Christian, she was the first person to go to the authorities to report what the doctor had done. And um, when he was convicted at his sentencing, The judge invited any of his victims who wanted to come and to say something to him. And um, Rachel Denhollander said this to the man who had abused her. She said, Larry, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing And that is what makes the gospel of Jesus so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt, so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than you need forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well that's not just one isolated example. Um, a few years ago, a gunman came into a prayer meeting at Emanuel um, AME Church in South Carolina, opened fire, killing nine people before he was arrested. At his arraignment the next day, the families of the victims showed up to offer Forgiveness. In 2017, a um, explosion went off at a Coptic church in Egypt on Palm Sunday. Not taking time to think about how do we respond, immediately, within a day or two, the congregation, uh, the remaining congregation, gathers in order to offer forgiveness to those. The sermon the pastor preached was called Forgiveness to Those Who Kill Us. This is the impulse over and over again. God's people are those who know ourselves to be sinners. Come to God to find forgiveness, and that forgiveness transforms us into people who can go into the world bringing the good news of forgiveness. That's what God is doing in our world. The good news of the gospel is that God comes and looks us in the eye and asks us to confess our sin, not so that we will feel bad about ourselves, not to shame us, but to remove our shame and take away our guilt, to free us to live Uh, Free us from a life of living in hiding and then sending us out into the world as agents of that good news. Amen, let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your immediate response to our sin. We pray, God, that we would have the courage to take your word seriously. That in doing so, we would find that you are more than worthy of our trust. God, you have given us all things in Christ. Would you you please uh, work in each of our lives bringing us to an awareness of our sin that we might find forgiveness in Jesus? Would you transform us into forgiven people who forgive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.